0: Disney. Walt Disney arrived in California exactly 100 years ago. Uh, And so, before we hear from the choreographer Akram Khan about the show that he is bringing to the Aotearoa New Zealand Festival of the Arts in February, the Jungle Book Reimagined, let us remember Walt Disney's reimagining of the Jungle Book having arrived in California, as I said, a hundred years ago. The Jungle Book was the last animated feature to be produced by him before he died in December 1966. Jungle Book, the original motion picture, the last animated movie that Walt Disney made, Um, he died just about a month before the movie was released, I think. British Bangladeshi Akram Khan is one of the world's most respected dancers and choreographers. He has a show called Jungle Book Reimagined, which he is bringing to the Aotearoa New Zealand Festival of the Arts in February. Here is some music from that. That's prologue Exodus from Jungle Book Reimagined, the show that British Bangladeshi choreographer Akram Khan is bringing to the Aotearoa New Zealand Festival of the Arts in February. He began his dancing career in a
1: tour of Adventures of Mowgli when he was about 10. I I was in a professional company. But I wouldn't say I was very professional well, <laughs> at the age of ten. But um, I, I played Mowgli, so I played Little Mowgli, the boy. So I got away with a lot because I was I was a child. But uh, I think yeah. I started taking art seriously after working with Peter Brook, and that was to, to do the Mahabharata, and that was in eighty seven, eighty eight. So yeah,
0: that must have been extraordinary. I mean, Peter Brook of course is legendary. How did you get that gig? <laughs>
1: uh from jungle book actually um somebody had spotted me um at the age of 10 and probably kept me in their mind and then uh asked me to audition and uh uh 2 years later and so when i was 12 i went to the audition in london and i think peter wanted someone who could move uh because you know the, the Mahab- his version of the mahabharata is all together with breaks in three parts, but it's breaks. Uh, I would say it's about eleven hours. Yeah. So to have the physical stamina to hold it, he wanted a, a young boy who could uh, uh, perhaps who was a dancer. So I, I was very lucky to get that gig. I mean, I, I you know, I I hadn't done any theatre before that. I mean, I'd done dance theatre, but not not theatre theatre.
0: So how many hours were you actually on the
1: stage for? I would say seven out of nine. I mean, there's two hours break. So there was three hours, part one, intermission, one hour, three hours, part two, intermission, one hour, three hours. So out of the nine hours, uh, I would say I was in it for seven. Wow. Yeah, seven. Yeah. Were you being looked after? You were so young. Yes, I was. I mean, we had understudy, so I, I didn't play always every show. So we shared amongst two or three of us um because of my age and the, the legal ramifications about it sure. so i wish i could have done it all the way through um uh, because it was it really changed the way i saw the world and more importantly it changed i think peter and not just peter but the collection of actors they were giants at that time and he gathered them from africa from japan from india from poland from russia from italy from england and just that collection of you know Twenty to thirty incredible actors, I think the way they dealt with art really affected the way I relate myself with art because for them it wasn't a job it was it was life art was life, and uh they never they never came out of uh, art it was every question, every conversation, even in breakfast, lunch, and dinner was about through the lens of art so it was that community that changed the way you saw things, or was it the Mahabharata itself. No, I think it's a. Com- it was that community. I mean, the Mahabharata itself became ingrained in me, really, because you know we'd done a year and three months of touring, uh, and uh, so the Mahabharata was like a, a mantra for me, like it's something I knew, memorised, uh, having done it for such an extensive period, and so consistently. Um, but really, it was the a collection of actors, that community of actors, that. Um, made me realize that this is, you know, you, you either do it as a job, which for me is really a hobby, or you do it as, or you have another approach, which is this is my life and this is, I immerse myself in it 100%. It's not, there isn't a, 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 a you know, a, a nine, it's not a nine-to-five job. Your
0: parents were immigrants to the UK from Bangladesh, how did because the the standard trope about immigrants is that they want their children to be lawyers or doctors how did they adapt to your choice
1: um i my mother was a uh, a very strong uh but quiet quietly strong feminist so she um was very much into literature, so she i think you know I think partly the the reason I got into dance was because I was forced into dance, and the reason I was forced into that my whole generation actually my sister as well was forced into dance was because I was born in seventy four but the war civil war in Bangladesh, which was then called East Pakistan, really traumatized them, so they lived through a civil war. They lost family, they lost friends, they lost an entire community of people to West Pakistan, which is now Pakistan, and uh, uh, East Pakistan became Bangladesh. So when they came to London straight after that, I think my mum was, and some of the aunties were very, they wanted to make sure that everything that they fought for, the culture that they fought for, the language, the poems, the songs, the dance, the the narratives were not lost. That, you know, the deaths, that the, the loss that they felt, the grief that they felt wasn't for nothing. So they really kind of pushed, I would say forced us, all the children to learn the poems, the songs, the dance, the theatre. And so I learned, um, I, I feel like we were kind of like living museums rather than a museum, so they could store these this culture into us and I call it a living museum because the body is a living museum. We carry without us, we carry in our bodies, our ancestors, our great, great ancestors, you know? And so in a sense, we are just continuing that thread, if you like, of that culture. But you chose it as a career. Was that all right? Um, I think that was true. I think they were worried. They were worried for sure. Uh, the community put a lot of pressure on my parents that I go to university. So eventually I went to university, but uh, it was to study dance. And, you know, I understand um, my nephew, who's now 15, 16, my sister's ter- terrified of him going into dance uh, because, you know, she's like, well, not everyone's going to be Akram Khan. You you were lucky, right? And so, yes, there is a point that I was super lucky to, to do it, but I would have been even more unluckier if I wasn't doing the thing I love doing, even if I was unsuccessful at it. The fact that I love doing what I do, that love was it what was really the important thing. And that's what I tried to explain to my sister who's who now is going, Oh, my son, my nephew basically, is wanting to go into dance because of you and he loves dance. And I'm like, Well, just go with it. I think my parents were concerned for, you know, it's not it's it's not a it's not a you don't know if you're gonna you know, get a salary. You don't. You know, dance. It's like theater, like acting. It's, it's just precarious. Yeah, it's very precarious. Yeah, I, yeah.
0: I, I get the impression that your mother was the source of a lot of your creativity and supportive. Your father was slightly more difficult. And your first solo dash uh, looked at your relationship with him and yes. his homeland uh I, I i don't know whether you worked stuff out with him through that
1: no i i think it's i think i never got to work it out i think uh i worked it out for myself but i never resolved you know you know everyone knows family is so complex <laughs> yeah uh it's so complex you know and i didn't know how to love my father because he never showed me love. But it's not that he didn't love me. He just didn't know how... He didn't know how to show me love the way I wanted to be... The the way I wanted... that, The way I would have liked him to show me love. You know? And it's a different generation. Was it a
0: generational thing or a cultural thing? Because a lot of people... I don't know how old you are, but you're not that far uh, from me. And parents um of our generation were generally um more withholding
1: yeah yeah definitely and i think there was a it it was a crisis of the male uh, you know the the uh, the the man really of, of that generation and still is to a certain point Um, to a certain degree. But I think we are a different generation. and We deal with the feminine and masculine and emotional states differently to the way our parents did, for sure. That generation was, you know, and and to, to make it worse was that they'd lived through a war. And they came to England, and they were not the majority. They were the minority. So they had to fight for everything. So my father had to become very tough, it's only when he passed last year that I began to love him until that point of his death. Basically the next morning after his death, I started to see him for who he was. And I started to see patterns that I never recognized before. And that was his way of showing love. His, pat- his way of showing love was, you know, he's got a museum in his garage filled with five copies of every article that I've done over the last 25 years um and uh uh from all over the world so th- we're talking about thousands and thousands of articles press release uh, uh posters this i did not understand that that's his way of showing his love
0: mm. did he know that you loved him
1: no no i think uh that's my i'm at war with my wrongs really um he died very suddenly uh and uh i i i i thought i had 2 or 3 years left um to at least sit down with him and talk to him about but i never did i he 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 died pretty suddenly and my biggest regret was i was not there on the night that he died uh but i i that's the funny thing you know uh, i am an artist and i should i trust my instincts and yet at that night when he got in the ambulance somehow my instincts were saying I feel like he knows something I don't. He was looking at me like he knew something I didn't. What he knew was he was not gonna come back. What I didn't know was, was I was convincing myself that, oh, he's gonna be back tomorrow morning. He's just going to the hospital to do a checkup and he'll come back tomorrow. And so, uh, yeah, it was a huge eye-opening moment for me. Uh, Death, that's why my work is, my work has always been around life and death, really.
0: So how do you live? with that kind of unfinished business? Because we all have unfinished business to some extent. How do you deal with it?
1: I think uh, I don't run away from it anymore. I think I was running away from my father all my life. Um, And who was that? When you're running away from something, you're also running towards something. So I was always running towards my mother. She was my... uh, you know, the one I looked up to, et cetera, et cetera. I think the way I deal with it now is I stopped running and I just turned around. And when you stop running and you turn around and you confront it, I th- think you start to relearn. Um, and I process every year that I had with him, and I I just analyze everything that I that I did with him and try to see it through his perspective. It's incredible because my mother taught me a lot about empathy, but I never had empathy for my father because I was so angry with him. Um, And all my works, all my works has both my father and mother in it. The rage that comes out of the work is really from my father, my experience with my father, and the love in my work comes from my mother.
0: Why were you so angry with him?
1: Oh, you know, I think my father was a very complex man when I was a child, because I never got into private schools. Because, you know, as you said, immigrant children, most of them uh, want their children to go to private schools. The best schools, academic. I never got into any private school. I was a rebel. I just did not belong in front of a desk. And so that was a big shame to him. But I remember every morning, I think from the age of, I don't know, probably from the age of seven till about 13, until I got into the Mahabharata, that's when he stopped doing it. But as a ritual, every morning, he would whisper or say to me, you will amount to nothing. Oh, no, did he? No, no, every morning as a ritual. He was so angry, I think. with I think anger sometimes doesn't come from the thing that you're, aiming it at I think because he loved me that was he he thrust the anger and that's that was the wrong way I think he was unfinished in his own life so he didn't achieve perhaps what he wanted to do so that frustration came out in those words because I wasn't achieving what he wanted me to be so it was it was like a to my left ear by the way so he would always whisper to my left ear you will amount to nothing before I went to school right to nursery well to primary school etc cetera, etc cetera, until about 13 but my mother knew that was happening so every evening when I came back she would whisper in my right ear Akram those who say to you that you will amount to nothing are actually truly terrified of who you can truly become so I had this contradictory messaging and influence um, that was very traumatic it was a very traumatic period of my life I would say I suppose you wouldn't be who
0: you are today had you not gone through that. That's always the solace we can take from those times is it
1: i'm made we are made up of our experience of as children we see the world we we experience the world based on what we have experienced as children It's limiting those how do we overcome those limitations i It's hard to say i mean i'm I can't say that I did it on my own um I stopped believing in myself. I was so petrified that people thought I was stupid and dumb until for a, for a long time, you know. And until when? I Until I the moment I decided that this was dance was my life. What happened was I did the Mahabharata for a year and a half. I joined at 13. I came out roughly at 14 and a half, 15. I went back to school and I realized I'm terrified, and I hate being at school. So every day for a year, I lied to my parents. Where I'd leave in a uniform, school uniform, I would go around the back alleyway, climb over the fence, back into my back garden, go into the garage, stay there for nine hours, ten hours, um, and then come and then put my uniform back on, climb over the fence, come back through the front door, and make up a story of how school was. That lasted for about a year, and I. very very good at lying you have to be because my mother was a teacher so she would know if I if my version's changing or if I've copied a version that I said last week I had to be very meticulous but to live a lie for a year and then a year later I got caught (laughs) I was going to say did the teachers never turn you into your parents Uh, there was a letter I used to rip up all the letters because I knew they were asking where I was etc the attendance etc there was one letter that caught me out and uh, my mother was sick that day and she stayed home and the post arrived late and I was already in the garage and she I came back home uh, skipping home you know from school apparently and she said oh tomorrow we have parents evening and I was like what she goes, yeah, I got a letter. We're at parents. I said, how did you get it? She said, oh, I wasn't feeling well, so the postman arrived late anyway. And I, I've written, and I, so the next day we went to the parents' evening. No, sorry, the following week, I think. And I was petrified because I was, I hadn't been there for a year. So you know, parents met the teachers. My mum's patiently waiting. My name never gets called up. She goes up to the teacher and says, oh, I, I'd love, to, um, you didn't call out Akram Khan. Uh, I'd love to know how how he's doing, my son. And he goes, oh, just hold on a second. He went down the list and he went, oh, you, is your boy Akram Khan? And she said, yes. And he, oh, um, I'd love to know how he's doing. <laughs> and she said, oh, what do you mean? She said, well, yeah, we thought he moved or something because he hasn't been here for a year. And so that was the unraveling of all my lies. And she said, where have you been? She took me home quietly and she said, where have you been? And I took her to the garage. And she saw that there was an old TV that I had taken from my dad's um, back room. Um, there was a VHS recorder. They always thought somebody had stolen in it. It was me who had put it in there. She said, what have you been doing? And she saw my bells, my Indian classical dance bells. And I said, well, I never felt like I fitted in after coming back from Peter. So I, I've been training. And she said, but why the TV? And she said, well, I've been Training also, not just in Indian classical dance, but I had nine hours, ten hours to kill every day. So I was copying Charlie Chaplin's films. I was copying Michael Jackson. I was copying Prince. I was copying um, Fred Astaire, Buster Keaton. She said, show me. And I showed her. And from that moment on, she felt she needed to support me. And that's when I had a conviction that something landed. Something landed after when I felt my mum make that decision and say, Well, son, we're going to support you because you could have bunked. You could have missed school for a year and not... The fact that you were obsessed with something means this is what you should be...
0: You weren't behind the bike sheds smoking drugs.
1: No, no. Did she tell your father? She did. He didn't speak to me for three months. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I feel bad because... You know, it's different now. I think the culture has changed. People are a bit more supportive. People are a bit more open. They understand, even if it's worrying, they know that you know people can make it in dance. People can make it in theatre. You just need to let them find what they love doing. But in that time, you know, my father didn't know how to deal with that. Eventually, he supported me. Um, but it, yeah, it was a it was a traumatic, complex time.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm talking to one of the most celebrated dance artists, Akram Khan about the production of Jungle Book, Jungle Book Reimagined, that he's bringing to New Zealand in February. Um, You started making more ecologically aware work, I think, with a work called Creature, and this has continued with the Jungle Book Reimagined. I was struck by the fact that you said that you had read a collection of essays by Amitav Ghosh. He wrote that fantastic trilogy, The Sea of Poppies Trilogy, and that yes. influenced you, yes?
1: Yes. Yeah, the collection of books that he had written has influenced me. It had a big part to play in. You know, he, he speaks a lot about um, how nature has been separated from man, uh, modern human beings because we're, it's almost like we control nature and what he was saying in modern myths there is no accountability for human beings in relation to nature but in old myths there is always stories where if you destroy the forest if you destroy nature if you destroy the jungle if you destroy the desert if you destroy the sea the the gods the nature gods will retaliate and it will have huge consequences for humankind. So that fear was instilled in the old myths, but not in modern myths. And that got me thinking.
0: What are the modern so in, myths, just as a matter of interest? What modern myths are you thinking?
1: I would say most of the books I've read of these days doesn't really have nature gods. I think partly because we don't, we don't talk about gods, right, in modern myths, not so much. It's more about human beings. And when I read modern myths, it's, it's more about our social Beings in and about power within social. I mean, it's very rarely that I would hear uh, uh, stories where uh, a, a human destroys the tree or a forest, and the forest takes revenge on the human. Um, in modern myths, especially the children's well, no, to be honest with you, it's changing because the books that my children are reading now, the the newer books, uh, the newer myths, the uh, are, are are changing. Yeah, because because of climate change, there's
0: a new ecology,
1: and I there is a new ecology for sure. There's a huge, I mean, Jungle Book Reimagined was really influenced by my daughter who was who's 10 now but was eight at the time because she kept saying, Papa, you have to talk about uh climate change, and I was kind of doing that in Creature, so Creature paid a plot, but it was not the central point of my messaging with Jungle Book Reimagined. It was very much the center of it. And my daughter also went on to say, because, you know, lockdown happened, right? In 2020, I was up in my loft. My, my daughter, for the first time, had me for a year and a half. You know, for me to be present every day, that's never happened. So suddenly I was stuck in the office, upstairs in the loft, and she would sit with me, listening to all my Zoom meetings with my collaborators. So Jungle Book was being made conceptually, um, the script and everything, it was by Zoom, and at the end of each Zoom, she would turn to me and she'd say, Papa, you're making, you're thinking of a huge set. All your work is with huge sets. And I said, And she would say, Well, Zenos, you're solo. Dish, you're solo. I said, What about it? She said, They're big sets. I said, Yeah. But there's only you on stage. I said, Yeah. But why do you need big sets? Because aren't you trying to reduce carbon footprint? <laughs> and after that, realization we decided to change the entire model of my company in relation to the sets she said papa she said something very interesting she said you talk about change but you don't want to change you want everything around you to change this 8 year old girl just summed up the human uh, uh, crisis so does this mean that you it's a more minimal production I mean there's there's no sets that we're taking with us. We ask each theater to provide cardboard boxes that can be recycled. So they bring in the cardboard boxes and we build it. Ah. So it's
0: interesting. The Jungle Book. Why did you choose it? It was written by, you know, the imperialist Rudyard Kipling has gone through yeah. the Disney transformation. What yeah. do you think it has to offer?
1: people now okay so um i think my generation and my children's generation perhaps makes an error in the way they look at the past and the future and what i mean by that is they want to erase the past they want to cancel the past and i'm saying don't cancel the past Put the past in front of you because we will make the same arrogant mistakes that our past made because they never looked back. The fact that we are in this situation today where the our civilization is unraveling as we speak, and we all know we're just not saying it, it's unraveling. The whole world is unraveling right now. It's because we have forgotten our past. So we have global dementia. We choose to be in denial. Second World War, First World War should have taught us the mistakes and the horrific wrongs that we have done, but also the beautiful things we have achieved. It's very modern thinking to go, well, that's bad and this side's good. The moment you say this side's good, it's already a bad way to look at it. In bad choices sometimes there are gray areas where maybe there is some good and in good choices sometimes there are bad things in there so what i'm trying to say is we are in the world of social media now if my relationship to my friend and my relationship to my mother or my relationship to my children cannot be summed up by two options as facebook gives you likes and dislikes Human relationships are very complex. So I can't say in two choices, just use two choices, likes and dislikes, thumbs up or thumbs down, to describe my relationship between my mother as opposed to my sister, as opposed to my children, as opposed to my wife. It, it, it's not possible. But today we live in a world where we just need things simple. You're either right or you're wrong. And I always use the example of Trump. Trump is bad but there's also stuff that he said that is difficultly interesting um and so i don't want to you know this this is modern thinking as well there's well not modern thinking actually i would say even in religion you have uh heaven and hell human beings don't exist between heaven and hell they exist in the middle and so there's grey areas everywhere. There's, a, there's layers to goodness and there's layers to badness. It's
0: interesting so, you should say that, actually. I've just done an interview with an Australian author who had, uh, by most measures, a horrendously bad childhood. His father was a drunk, his stepfather was a drug pusher, his mother was a junkie. He loved them uh, all. And he says, people are never just that one thing. My father was a drunk, but I loved him, and he taught me about books. And my stepfather was a drug pusher, but he was the most fantastic role model for in other... You know, and that Mm. seems to be exactly what you're saying. People should never be put in the box.
1: No, no, absolutely. I think that's it. You know, that's why I call our bodies living museums. I think the problem is that we want to put things like into a museum. It's simple that way. This is the past, this is the future, this is right, this is wrong, this is light, this is darkness. And we got onto this because I
0: said Rudyard Kipling was an imperialist.
1: Yes, I mean, I'm
0: assuming you're saying, you know, he wasn't a bad guy.
1: (laughs) um, Yes, what I'm saying is. He was a bad guy, but what I'm saying is within that, the story has huge resonance. Right. Even within his badness, the story has huge resonance because he was saying, funnily enough, he was saying in, well, the Disney version that took from Rudyard Kipling was saying that uh, we must fear humans, mankind, not humans, mankind, the patriarchal system, fire, fire, Because fire is going to be the danger. Humankind are dangerous to animals, to nature. So it's really the patriarchal system against the matriarchal system.
0: Is that why you've made Mowgli a girl?
1: No, that was my daughter's decision. Was it? (laughs) Yeah. I I hope she gets a credit on all this. She does, you know. When she hit ten and she saw Jungle Book, she said, "Papa, are you going to pay me now?" And I said, "Pay you? Are you kidding me? You entitled <laughs> girl? No, look, uh, you are lucky to be in that room with. No, but I, to be honest with you, she she, she had a big part to play. I'll tell you why. This is a family show. I needed to see it through her eyes. That's why I allowed her to be in that loft to listen to all the conversations because she had some really interesting things to say. She would always give me feedback from what she's hearing. And I needed to be able to listen to her because it's that age group that I'm aiming for. So, yes, I knew about it. Rudia Akemping was an imp- a lover of empire, imperialist. Um, but I, you also got it's a gray area because at the same time, do you know, when I was a child, I've never seen, that until that I saw Jungle Book, the animation, Disney version, I'd never seen a brown boy play the lead character, let alone the brown boy in any of the animations, because I grew up with Superman. I grew up with Thor. I grew up with Spider-Man. I grew up with Batman. None of them were brown. So for me to feel that I was being represented, like there's a possibility for me to become a protagonist in any kind of fantastical story it was jungle book the disney version that really gave me that sense and then when i did the uh, performance you know as a 10 year old to the to the country doing jungle book it really stayed with me so i always knew that i wanted to relook at it what i'm interested in is reimagining it because even in the wrongs even if a work is wrong there is some messaging there is some goodness it's like what you said about the author that's incredible what you said about the author you know the fact that he found areas um of beauty and grace within the father and stepfather yeah it's really really important looking forward to seeing your production thank you i'm look i'm so so excited i mean uh that you know the festival has invited us back and and also you know british council new zealand have been hugely supportive of this of us coming there so uh, without them you know the festival and the british council it just wouldn't happen so in in the times that we live in for me and i'm a big all blacks fan so you know i grew up watching you know i'm anti-rugby my body's anti-rugby <laughs> um i wish i could have been a rugby player but you know i i was very good at running funnily enough not running 100 meters but at, when i was a kid i was very good at running away <laughs> yeah <laughs> so if you gave me so if you gave me the ball the the teachers would be like, wow, he runs really fast, but he's running in the wrong direction. <laughs> and I think you know, I remember those first few sessions of playing rugby in school, and I was terrified because people were coming to, you know, di- to smash me. So, of course, I learned to run quick. I was running for my life. So, by default, I fell in love with rugby and my my favorite, and, you know, the fact that all blacks there's a ritual a dance ritual a poem ritual the Hakka dance you know Mm -hmm. for me that's when i fell in love with rugby it was through that dance
0: how much dancing are you still doing i know xenos was your last full solo performance um but you will still be dancing of course will you not
1: Yes, I'm. I'm preparing next year to do a cameo role in uh, in a work. Um, so I'll dance in small bits. I mean, I can't sustain an hour and ten minutes. It's not that I can't. I just the body. The, yeah, it's just it's just too mentally, emotionally draining and physically. The amount of preparation I have to do because you know next year I turn fifty. So to be able, if I was continuing Xenos, I think my body would be broken. So it it was time. And also I've been so. When I'm on tour and I'm preparing so much to be able to be able to perform, really, you know, the amount of preparation that goes to protect your body in order to perform, just to perform. It's it's so time consuming that I feel like I'm not being a father to my children. To be a father or a mother, you have to be present. So uh, I think it was the right time.
0: I was just wondering whether you think your body would be in worse shape or better shape had you played rugby.
1: Oh, no, I think I'd have been a broken person. Yeah, I I think so, too. uh, I'm not underestimating
0: the the trials and tribulations that go into a dancer's
1: life. You must have had injuries. It's a a different kind of violence. (laughs) You know, the violence in rugby is not self... It's not a self-violence. You know, you're not doing it to yourself. It's others doing it to you. In your dance, it's a self-violence. It's a violence of oneself because you can control how much you push your body.
0: So, how did your body adapt to not being pushed, not having all those hours of practice every day, not having those long performances?
1: No, I, I, I would have. Uh, you know, I. It was in lockdown. That's roughly around then that I. Just before lockdown, I was preparing to retire. But I had to do it. I had to keep training for another three years because I needed to finish the contract of Zenos, which was meant to be in India and get postponed many years until I think it was this year, June, uh, uh, June that I went to. Yeah, this year, June, I went to India and I finally completed the whole sh- tour. Um, Otherwise, I would have stopped in twenty. But I knew I was coming towards the end of doing full length work. So I remember my mother retiring, and I told her when. This was years back. And I said, Ma, you've been a teacher for 30 years. Don't stop suddenly. And she stopped suddenly. She ignored me and she stopped suddenly. And I remember within a year, she had aged by 10 years. And so I learned from that. And I thought, well, I need to have a transitional thing that I can become obsessed with. So in lockdown, I took Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes because I have a studio in my back garden uh, and uh, so I started to train with a black belt, a jujitsu specialist, and that's become something like I still train in Indian classical dance because I love doing it. I think I would be depressed. I think I would, I would, I would lose a big part of myself. But what's beautiful is I do, I do it because I love it. I don't have to do it because I'm terrified that I'm coming up to a show. So oh. I train four hours a day still, two hours in. Uh, dance and uh, an hour and a half in Brazilian jiu So about three and a half hours a day in the morning before 11 o'clock hits, I would have done three and a half hours. And I will continue to do that as long as I can do that.
0: Blimey. All right. Lovely to talk to you. You're sounding fit and likely to go on for quite some time.
1: <laughs> You're very kind. Thank you. That was Akram
0: Khan. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you say? (laughs) He's bringing his show, The Jungle Book Reimagined, to the Art Hero New Zealand Festival of the Arts in February.